This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. It is Friday, February the 24th. It's been a long week, as you can tell. I can't speak anymore. Uh, I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside this evening, Christine Aquino, uh, here in the studio. Um, equity markets globally being rocked today by much stronger than anticipated inflation. Uh, the core PCE number out of the United States much higher uh, than just about every economist had anticipated. And it's telling a tale of inflation that is not coming down as anticipated, uh, inflation that is remaining stubbornly resilient. Uh, And in so many ways, this inflation has its core um, within the conflict that we're going to spend much of this program talking about. What is happening in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, we marked the one-year anniversary. We came out of the pandemic. uh, We had significant stimulus. uh, We knew that there were going to be supply-side shortages. Uh, That conflict has significantly exacerbated those shortages, and as a result of which, this inflation continues to have a meaningful impact. Let me just give you an idea uh, of some of the impact that we're seeing today. Uh, most European currencies are down relatively sharply today. Uh, the dollar is up by around seven tenths of one percent. The euro stocks 50 is down by 1.8 percent. Uh, over in the United States, uh, we have equity markets that are still open that are down quite sharply off their lows. The S&P is down by 1.2 percent right now. The, the German two-year the bunt the bubble at the Schatz is uh, north of three percent today. That's the first time that we have seen that rate since 2008, Christine. Today's data, a real shock to the market. Wow, 2008. What were you doing back then? I, don't, I, I think I had a few <laughs> less grey hairs. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the fun times. Yeah, quite a while ago. But no, that that is pretty um, remarkable, that move that we've seen today. And really a product of what we've been hearing from the ECB in particular, right? I mean, they've definitely kind of made this push to guide markets toward expecting a higher peak in interest rates. Markets have definitely responded yep. in kind. And now it's a question of can the economy actually handle it? Well, the economy seems to be doing quite well. It is. The economy is doing fine. You look at the claims data this week. You look at all the data that we're seeing at the moment. The economy is is continuing very strongly. You got uh, you got consumer confidence data out of the UK today. The consumer seems to be weathering the cost of living squeeze remarkably well. Inflation is is holding up. The weather has played a significant factor. Gas prices have come down both here and over in the United States. Uh, the labour market is the real kind of key to all of this. Companies don't want to fire people because they're worried. They learned a lesson during the pandemic that if you fire people, it's hard to hire people. Absolutely. And we've definitely seen some stats, particularly in the UK. There's still a bunch of missing workers who've just completely left the workforce after the pandemic, whether it's due to illness or because they've retired early, living off of their housing market gains or what have you. But yeah, I think there's been a quite the shortage of manpower, which is definitely going to be key for uh, economies moving forward how well they can actually weather this. And it feels, as you say, that it's going to become a structural problem. Um, This all comes, as I say, as we mark the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. In some ways, as I say as well, we have been been maybe sheltered from the effects of that war by mild weather this winter. Uh, We have seen a huge and wholesale change uh, in the, uh, the energy story here in Europe as a result of that conflict. Should Europe now be preparing... Uh, for this conflict to last a long time? Have we seen the bulk of the effects of this conflict already? 
already uh, into into the European economy. Uh, we're going to talk about this throughout the show. We're going to examine as well uh, what is happening on the ground. President Zelensky is currently delivering a press conference to the media. It's been going on for a few hours now. He certainly sounds positive, but he sees his job as basically continuing to provide the aid for Ukraine so it can continue to fight back against Russia. So that's where we are this Friday. We've got a lot to think about, a lot to talk about. Let's get some headlines now. Here's Charlie. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. UK household confidence rebounded by the most in almost two years in February. A sign started to emerge that the worst bout of inflation in four decades is starting to ease. GFK's consumer confidence indicator jumped seven points to a minus 38. While that was a 10-month high, it remained close to the historic lows triggered by the cost of living crisis. The UK granted residence visas last year at almost double the pace it did before the pandemic as more people came to work and study in the UK. The Home Office issued a total of 1.4 million visas last year, up from 714,000 in 2019 before coronavirus lockdowns halted much travel. The numbers mark a contrast with the goal of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's government to cut immigration sharply, one of the main things the Conservatives promised to deliver after leaving the European Union. Junior doctors in England will walk out for three consecutive days next month after voting overwhelmingly to take industrial action, overpay, claiming the government has refused to engage. The British Medical Association says trainee doctors will not report for work starting March 13th as they push for a higher than 2% raise for the current fiscal year. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So as I mentioned, President Zelensky in Kyiv right now, delivering a press conference to the media. You can just hear it here. He's been answering questions over the last few hours, answering the media's questions about where his country is, what it needs, what his expected timeline is for the end of this conflict, how he's going to maybe broker some sort of a peace in this conflict as well. He's talked much about wanting to bring India and China, and he's talked about his role uh, as uh, potentially uh, the sort of the aid gatherer in chief, maybe. Um, He certainly wants to provide the weapons and the resources that his country needs to defeat Russia. One year into the conflict, where are we? Where are we going? Let's try and answer some of these questions. We're joined by Bloomberg senior reporter for international affairs, Mark Champion. Mark, what have you made of what Zelensky has been saying today? Well, I think the biggest uh, point that he made, the most important one that uh, I think indicates a shift, uh, is that, um, you know, before, if you you can say that last year, uh, his enormous focus was simply to make sure that Ukraine had uh, the support, the military support that it needs. And that is still a massive priority. Um, but that was about talking to the U.S. It was about talking to Europe. It was about talking to Japan. Um, it was about talking to, the, to those countries that saw uh, Ukraine, you know, their national interests in, in protecting Ukraine. Um, now, uh, I think there's an acknowledgement that, uh, and he kind of acknowledged it in his press conference, saying that, you know, they hadn't really paid enough attention as much as they should uh, to Africa, to Latin America, um, to, and he also talked about China and India. Um, so, because basically it is correct that uh, however successful he's been uh, in getting Ukraine's message across and being a real, you know, an incredibly persuasive uh, leader at home and abroad, he's failed with the 
the global south, uh, so have the U.S. and Europe. Um, in general, even though they, they may not um, actively support the war that Russia's waging, they uh, are not uh, backing Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and this is particularly dangerous for Ukraine when it comes to China. Um, China is the factory of the world, and if it were to engage, as the Americans have said that they think uh, China isn't considering to do, um, in supplying Russia with lethal weapons, um, that would change the nature of the war quite dramatically. Uh, most wars, as you know, most wars are, are, are won by the country that has the industrial capacity, the ability to produce enough people and material uh, to fight and to win. Um, and if uh, Russia already has a population three times the size, they have the capacity there, if they can mobilize it, um, if they also have the China's industrial capacity behind them, um, it's going to change everything for Ukraine. So, Mark, let's tackle that China piece uh, more specifically, because, of course, we saw that ceasefire plan coming out of Beijing today. And uh, a lot of the initial commentary around it really hammers on the fact uh, or I guess the interpretation of it is that it's benefiting Russia really more than Ukraine. And so if, if you're saying that the next kind of crucial step for Ukraine here is to bend the ear of China a little bit, what are they're going to have to do to be able to do that? And is it even possible at this stage? I think it's very difficult. I mean, that, that 12 point document is, uh, you know, at the same time, uh, a nonsense and interesting. It's a nonsense as a peace plan, uh, simply because, I mean, they didn't, you know, when you are trying to mediate uh, a conflict, the first thing you do is, is shuttle diplomacy going back and forth uh, to try and, you know, uh, gauge what the red lines are on each side and then to try and bring them together. Uh, China didn't do any of that. It simply produced a document and said, here's a document, here's a peace plan. Um, it didn't talk to the Ukrainians. Uh, and so it, it's not a peace plan. Um, the key element there, it says, let's cease hostilities. It doesn't say uh, on what ground that would be done. So it would simply be freezing the conflict where it is now. And as Zelensky said, that's an impossible thing for the Ukrainians to accept. It would simply be a win for, for, for Russia. Chinese fully understand this. Um, however, what that uh, piece of paper does do is, if you read it carefully, uh, most of it is about uh, China's relationship with the U.S. Most of it is about the things that it really dislikes that the U.S. does. And it, the, the Ukraine is simply a forum for that. Um, and one of the things that I was speaking on a live blog earlier with a, a Ukrainian military analyst talking exactly about this, and he said that the one thing as a Ukrainian citizen that I don't want is to become uh, the testing ground or contesting ground between American and Chinese weapons. Um, that's the last thing that uh, Ukraine can afford to do. Uh, so I think it is. Um, yeah, so is it already a proxy war, though? Well, uh, you know, it, okay. So, so there's, there's that is very much a, a, an argument. So on the on the kind of Western side, the argument is, uh, no, uh, because uh, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, and we are simply helping Ukraine to defend itself. Um, uh, They're pouring the, the, military weapons. Leopard two tanks are arriving. Multiple yes, rocket launch systems yes, are arriving. They are. This, this, this looks. If you if you look back at the post forty five kind of history. This ticks a lot of boxes. Uh, it, it does, but generally in a proxy war, uh, talk about the Cold War, right? Um, yep. There was never a there was never a, a, a proxy war uh, on uh, you know in in the place where it is now, where Russia is saying, <coughs> "This is our land." 
there were proxy wars, you know, in Vietnam or in in Africa. Uh, this yep. is this is if you listen to Putin's speech, he's saying these are our historic lands. He has declared them part of Russia. Uh, this is a war of conquest. So it is, you know, it Taiwan on the one, it looks box. like a proxy war, and yeah. in many, it does walk and talk a bit yeah. like a proxy war. But if it's if this is a proxy war, what's a war? I mean, if you you know, you 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 got to ask. This is a war of conquest where one side is saying this is now my territory. So it's a little different from what we we normally think of as a proxy. But I completely take the point. It is, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the U.S. deciding these are our guys and that we're taking on, you know, we're taking on Russia in order to uh, uh, to protect our guys. And also, you know, they have an interest in wearing down uh, the Russian capabilities and so on. It's, yes, of course, there's there's definitely very significant elements. Uh, but it is part of the the argument because as soon as you say it's a proxy war. Then it sounds like, oh well, there's, there's, you know, there are no good guys here. There's no bad guys, and and that's why I think the Ukrainians in particular resist this idea because it tends to say, uh, this isn't an invasion. This is a game, and their point is, no, it's an invasion. Well, so the crucial bit here is maintaining and, and getting that support from the world stage, right? And uh, Ukraine's definitely succeeded when it comes to Europe and the U.S. in particular. But do you see risk there when, if uh, the war continues on beyond uh, the, the second year, third year mark, or what have you, and more domestic priorities begin to take precedence in these countries? I, I note, for instance, the U.S. is headed for an election in 2024, Support for an international war doesn't necessarily play well with uh, the American population voting. Uh, absolutely. I, I don't think, you know, the politicians, the one thing that politicians understand is uh, electoral politics. And uh, it was interesting. Recently, I was at the, uh, I just came back from Ukraine, but via the Munich uh, Security Conference. And uh, there you had, you know, uh, it's really the, the West talking to itself, essentially, at this point. Um, but there you had some of the most vocal people were uh, the Balts, the Estonians, the Lithuanians, the Latvians, the Poles and so on. And they, they talked a lot. And even they, who are absolutely paid up um, supporters of the war effort, even they were saying, I do fear and I can start to see it. Uh, that our own domestic um, you know, priorities will begin to eat away. And a number of people made the point about the U.S. election that the, 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 the yep. thing that has changed is that we are definitely now going to be into the next U.S. election cycle before this war is finished. Okay, let's yeah. just, just, just think about that from a different perspective. Given that, do you think Europe really is going to be prepared to spend more on defense? Because that, if you were to take one lesson away from Europe, it's, it's A, don't get too exposed to, to other economies, and B... You, you gotta, you gotta spend something here, and it's on you to do it. Uh, it is happening, so I, I don't think it's a question of if; it's a question of how much, yeah. and it will be uh, unevenly distributed. So the polls have already uh, doubled their spending in a year, for example. Yeah. Uh, the Germans are upping it big time. Uh, the Brits, not so much. That's no, interesting, isn't it? So how sustainable all of that will be, we will wait and see, Mark. We're one year in. We've really appreciated your coverage throughout this conflict uh, thus far. Bloomberg Senior Reporter for International Affairs, Mark Champion. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. So UK consumer confidence improved uh, according to GFK data um, and has now picked up to its highest level since last April. Let me caveat this. Let me caveat this quite a lot. Consumer confidence is still very, very depressed. Uh, economists had expected a range somewhere between negative 43 um, and kind of, uh, well, the range was negative 49 to negative 41. The median kind of somewhere around negative 43. We came in at negative 38. There's a bunch of sort of factors here. The pound probably is a factor. Uh, it's improved a little bit. People are getting used to what is happening around them. The initial shock of inflation, uh, higher rates, etc., may be beginning to fade uh, as well. So things may be showing signs of stabilisation. I think that's probably the best way of putting it. But we are at the highest level uh, since last April. I think it may be too early, though, to talk about uh, maybe signs of a recovery. Christine, let's talk a little bit about this. Christine wants to talk about fruit and veg, by the yeah. way. So she's going to weave this into I'm the I'm all about your five a day. Are you worried about your fruit and vegetable <laughs> intake? I'm especially worried seeing all those photos of the empty fruit and veg um, aisles yeah. in their supermarkets. But no, I think it's, it's very interesting, right? Because we have seen various measures of sentiment um, and, and even hard data, uh, surprising to the upside recently in yeah. the UK. And But at the same time, the public has been inundated with um, one crisis after another. This this fruit and vegetable shortage being the latest one. And so I really have to question, I mean, again, the caveat with this GFK measure, right, is that it's still quite depressed. It's still a negative territory. Um, and, and I just wonder how much optimism can you really build when the daily struggles of living in the UK is very evident? It, it is very evident. But but also, you take a look at the gas price. Mm-hmm. So we, we've all, we were all expecting this terrible winter. We were all expecting to be shivering in our homes. And actually, the winter has been relatively mild. We've not had to to have the thermostats uh, maybe cranked as high as we thought that we would. The gas bills, therefore, are probably going to be uh, a little bit lower than anticipated. The government's helped protect us as well uh, from those higher gas prices. So that's been one factor uh, that has come into play. Interest rates did spike during during the whole of this trust crisis, but they've come down since then. Um, they're still elevated. But, but with all these things, it's a... It's a kind of relative to expectations. I thought it was going to be really bad. It's still bad, but it's not really bad. That really makes a difference. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, you haven't had to break out your emergency generator this winter, have you? No, it's still there. I did <laughs> test it the other day, just okay. in case. Just in case. I hear we're going to get a cold snap next week, so always good okay. to be prepared. Yeah, yeah I, I was worried the lights were going to go. I, we were, but we were at that point that we were worried the lights were going to go out. That's right. Um, and that hasn't happened. Yes, our salad service is struggling a little bit, much to the delight, I have to say, of my eldest son, who sees a green thing and runs in the opposite direction. Um, but, but nevertheless, I, there, there, are, there are things that aren't, aren't as bad as we anticipated. Now, clearly, this is an economy that has major structural problems right now. And to a certain extent, it was interesting to, interesting to hear, the, char- uh, interesting to hear uh, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, talking about this yesterday. Clearly, we've got some big changes that are needing to be made. Productivity is dire in this country. Brexit has had an effect. And I, and I think if you look at your, your, your salad shortage, I, there are multiple factors at, at, at play here. One of them is the ability to have people to harvest the, 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 the fruit uh, and the vegetables. You've got, to, you've got to warm a lot of these things in order, in order to grow them as well, particularly at this time of the year. Um, 
so so I think there are there are kind of a number of factors that come in here, but but I, I think we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves. It is not as bad as it thought. But it could be, but it could still get worse. It, it could still get worse. I mean, one of the things that I think we haven't seen fully playing out in the economy is, of course, we have something like 1.4 million mortgages that are due to um, expire this year, and about yeah. half of that are going to see their mortgage rates double. We haven't seen the bulk of that process um, yet, and that could be something that could really inflict pain on a lot of households. And then, of course, there's also the idea of these energy subsidies. We're going to see less of that uh, from the end of April. And so you have to wonder, right, like while the the British public at the moment seem to be weathering um, these challenges relatively well, definitely uh, better than we expected, expected uh would those things that kind of like come along in the next few months be enough to break lags exactly the lags are still working their way through the system and it's interesting today the the bank of england's priced for another 50 basis points by may you look at the the inflation story around the world the expectation is that that we are not done and that policy impact that policy hit that monetary policy hit is still is still a working its way through the system and we still don't know how far they're going to have to go Absolutely. So that's going to be interesting. We're going to have a bunch of Bank of England speakers next week, including Andrew Bailey. And so it's going to be interesting to hear from all of them, see what the variety of views are. Because I have to say, the Bank of England, out of all the major central banks, actually seems to be the most united in terms of their public message. They have consistently guided... They tell Catherine about that. Exactly. But, you know, we know that she's she's an outlier and she's she's a hawk um, very much uh, out there. But uh, the bulk of the MPC... um, committees really kind of guided markets toward expecting less rather than more yep. in a way of rate hikes. So is that tune going to change come next week? Can I just say, am I the positive one here? You might be. I, I don't usually get to play this I role. know. I'm a bit shocked. What a change in role. Yeah. I'm just very worried about my five a day right now. Like, you got to get the five a day. You do see that certain supermarkets, I have to say, that maybe begin with a W, because I've shopped around a little bit, do seem to have a better stock of of fruit and veg. I, as you say, there's there's plenty that don't. Yeah, and I hear shop around. Yeah, you got to shop around. Well, I hear from here and your, your I hear from there. my husband, who is in charge of the shopping, that right. the um, uh, instant delivery services seem to have better stock as well. So there's a tip for our listeners there. Okay. Yeah. Shop online. Tip for you. Shop online and shop the instant delivery services. Instant de- okay. Yeah. Okay. Have a uh, look. Or, or, as somebody suggested today, I think it was a Tory MP, eat more, was it turnips? Turnips. Turnips, not tomatoes. I am not a fan of a turnip. Uh, eat a BTT sandwich. That does not That does not sound nice. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I, it's, it's nice to have a salad every once in a while. Um, maybe we should, though, be eating a little bit more seasonally. That certainly seems to be the message. Uh, Anyway, uh, what are we going to do next? We need to talk about what is happening with the U.S. economy as well. Uh, We should probably talk as well about the numbers out from IAG, the owner of British Airways today. Um, Actually quite good, I thought, but investors very unimpressed. Uh, Siddharth Philip will be back again. Uh, He'll be joining us next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable Live on DAB. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alongside this evening, Christine Aquino in the studio. U.S. equity markets are still under a little bit of pressure. The Nasdaq is down by 1.83%. The S&P is down by 1.23%. We're off the lows, though, which is significant. So the market is stabilizing. I also think 
significantly. We are holding above the 200-day moving average for the S&P, which is seen as a kind of big, important line in the sand. I think it's sort of 39.40 circa. We're kind of trading 39.60, but we're not done yet. Um, and there's a long way to go. The afternoon session could be quite interesting stateside. Uh, the dollar's up today. Uh, U.S. equity markets were under pressure. The FTSE actually did relatively well today, Christine. But we'll talk more about this uh, a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Th- th- this this is a a story that we should be getting used to I, every day it seems the data is coming in as we don't want it to higher inflation stronger labor market it's just like day after day at the moment it seems that the economy is confounding all expectations yeah and it really is definitely crumbling that narrative that the fed is done it really doesn't seem like they're anywhere near done and the data just all points to that right and so uh the fed's probably affirmed by that message given that they have been telling all of us that they're going to need to do more about inflation but i don't know how markets are going to react to that i mean clearly today dollars the King of everything. Yep. Um, the but buck is, the buck is back. Exactly. The buck is back. Um, on that note, Charlie Pellet, headlines, over to you. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Federal Reserve, certainly the big story today, with the Fed's preferred inflation gauges unexpectedly accelerating in January and American consumer spending surging after a year-end slump, adding pressure on policymakers to keep ratcheting up interest rates. In the UK, rail workers represented by the TSSA are in favor of an increased pay offer from their employers, even as a rival union rejects rejected it and vowed to continue protesting. The offer from 14 train operating companies was accepted by 80% of management grade members, but only around 60% of members from other grades voted in favor. Sources say Prime Minister Sunak is planning talks in coming days with UK ministers, EU officials and Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionist Party as the prospect grows for an end to the long-running standoff over Brexit. The UK Prime Minister is minded to announce an agreement on Northern Ireland's trading arrangements, uh, which uh, has been reached with Brussels either next week or even as soon as this weekend, according to those sources. Meanwhile, UK officials are developing scenarios of what might happen if the bird flu outbreak that has affected millions of animals worldwide were to evolve to spread between humans. A group has been formed to assess the risks and model scenarios were the outbreak to spill over. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Um, we talked about fruit and vegetables. Maybe we should have been talking more about bird flu. Anyway, let's move on. Charlie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, IAG, the owner of British Airways, uh, posting the first annual profit since the pandemic a little earlier on today. But the market unimpressed. The stock, I think, down by 6.5% at the close. Uh, the outlook certainly failing to impress. We've had a stock, a strong run for this stock. Uh, it is up sort of, let's call it circa 30% of late. Um, also, there, there's a little concern around this issue uh, of the decision by the airline, which remember has a big Spanish component, uh, to take full control of the Spanish airline Air Europa. Um, Barclays indicating that it's not convinced by the rationale for that deal. As ever, we turn to Sid Phillip for analysis on what is happening here. Sid, ostensibly, this looked like a good set of numbers. It did. It looked like a very good set of numbers, especially after the bloodbath that was the pandemic. Yeah. So so why the reaction? Is it is this about, I, I, and I use these, these words advisedly, is it better to travel than arrive? 
Uh, I think it's I think it's more than sort of I think people are looking for more optimism in the CEO's remarks and and also the outlook for 2023. And I think that's the one that's really not really delivered. And I think because of the sort of very tepid outlook in terms, especially I mean tepid in the face of exuberance by other carriers. If Is I may. this just down to the airline CEO though? Oh, it's a good question. Uh, I, that, it, so. My impression has always been that if you want to run an airline, you have got to be unbelievably optimistic. I'm not sure the British Airways CEO kind of comes across as being unbelievably optimistic. Yeah, I mean, you, every time you think unbelievably optimistic, you think Michael O'Leary, don't yeah, you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Richard Branson. Yeah. But we were talking about this yesterday, right? In in the context of the um, other airline results, it's kind of, it's a game of expectations. And especially coming off of the pandemic, um, there was still a lot of catching up for the entire industry to do. So does it really serve IAG to come out guns blazing in and be completely positive, um, knowing that there's still a lot of uncertainty in, in the future that could prevent them from meeting or exceeding those expectations? Yeah, I, th- I think being measured is probably the right way to go especially with so many unknowns at the moment and remember that IAG gets a lot of its revenue and especially the profitability from transatlantic travel as well as long-haul travel and that's very different the business model than say EasyJet or Ryanair and transatlantic long-haul travel all of that is subject to both recessions subject to sort of business travel continuing premium leisure so all of that is something that's really unknown at the moment and while demand is strong uh, people are still looking to see what the long-term trend is and at the moment you can either be unbelievably optimistic or you can be measured well unbelievably maybe the uh, the key kind of phrase there um let's talk about europa this is an airline that is effectively spanish the run the, the the group feels very Spanish. It is a Spanish airline. Yeah, it is basically a Spanish airline. Is this a further Spanishization, I, I just invented a word there, of IAG? Does it kind of just tell you about where the waiter, the, the kind of the gravity of this group is? Uh, I think, I mean, obviously, British Airways had outsized influence on IAG for a long, long time. And I think IAG has sort of stated that their objective is to build Madrid into one of its major hubs. And Air Europa allows them to do that. And yeah. And that helps them sort of diversify from the core transatlantic travel to lots of Latin America travel. Yeah, but a lot of analysts are kind of pointing to that specifically as part of the reason why they're just not convinced. I mean, Barclay is one of them um, saying that it's really it, it just doesn't see the rationale for, for the deal. But what about this move to bid for Air Europa is puzzling analysts at the moment? Like what's not clicking for them? So Air Europa, and there's a long story here. IAG bid for it back in 2019. They they almost bought it for a billion. The pandemic came around. They reduced the price. Then antitrust concerns as well as the pandemic sort of scuttled that deal. And now it's sort of revived. And yeah. it seems to be like the price for the carrier. And I think analysts are trying to struggle to find out what really does it give IAG in terms of additional premium business, which it... I mean, I think that's the sort of question but, but that I see. It, it basically just reinforces the idea that Madrid is going to become more important, which then reinforces the idea that Iberia and, I, and, and British Airways don't feel like natural fits. 
yeah, you wouldn't think that they're natural fits. I mean, it's not Air France KLM or Lufthansa, which is no, sort of... I'm not sure Air France KLM is a natural fit either, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, but it do, uh, there is this theory that continues to float around that, that IAG maybe does separate British Airways. I mean, and is this, is this part of the track towards that? I mean, I think it's still too early to say if it's actually part towards that. I mean, I think it's still a question of what really is the plan for Air, Air Europe and the Iberia Group as well, because... Yeah. Spain's a growing market. So, great stuff. As ever, thank you very much indeed. Always appreciate Sid's analysis. Uh, up next, we're going to take you back to the markets. We've got analysis uh, on that PCE data, that core PCE data, that inflation data out of the States. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. So financial markets have reacted violently uh, to the uh, the core PC number uh, that was delivered a little earlier out of the United States, 8.30, 8.30 uh, Eastern Time. The number was significantly higher uh, than just about everybody had anticipated. And once again, is another piece of data uh, that tells us that we have robust inflation, we have a robust economy, uh, and that the Fed is likely to have to go significantly further. In fact, there was a piece of paper published uh, to, a little earlier on today uh, by by some some quite um, influential academics that seems to suggest that actually the Fed may have to go as high as 6.5%. Let's kick this around a little bit. Where are we this Friday? It's been a turbulent week for financial markets. The perfect person to talk to is Bloomberg's Cameron Kreis. Cam, your thoughts on that number and how it fits into the bigger picture? Yeah, it was uh, it was bad. Um, obviously, the uh, uh, the face value releases in terms of headline and brick core um, coming in higher than expected. But uh, you could write some of that down, maybe to some of the revisions um, that we'd had to previous data. Um, but once you open up the bonnet and look underneath, it's it's not what the Fed wants to see at all. Um, the you know, Jerome Powell has mentioned this uh, core services excluding shelter uh, as, as a way of sort of getting a sense of the underlying level of service inflation, which is which is typically more sensitive to wage growth. And that rocketed back up to like 0.6 percent. I think it was it's the, the highest in more than a year. Um, even looking at goods prices, which have been at sort of the vanguard of the disinflationary movement, um, durable goods, um, so, you know, stripping out stuff you eat and stuff you burn, <laughs> as, as it were, uh, those prices rose three-tenths of a percent on the month after having fallen for the previous three months. Um, so that's a move in the wrong direction, um, and the market is, I guess, justifiably wondering if the Fed is going to have to ratchet up its estimate of how far it's going to have to go yet again, which has been a regular feature uh, of the financial market landscape for the last year. Yeah, and Cam, you know, that process time and again has just 
battered risk assets, particularly the equity market. Um, now, I want to bring in your thoughts uh, or latest thoughts on uh, valuations, uh, which are looking quite frothy. Um, and up until maybe February, right, we've seen quite the rally in, in equities. And so it, talk us through this idea of uh, the market seems to be picking its own facts when it comes to valuation. I mean, how did we even get here and how did the market manage to dilute itself so much when it comes to figuring out what the Fed's going to do from here? Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of equity market participants are big Monty Python fans. They like the life of Brian, and they particularly like the song at the end, Always <laughs> on the Bright Side of Life. Um, uh, I wrote a piece today uh, which just looks at some, it's really a technicality, um, I, I guess you, you, you could say, in terms of how back in the good old days, uh, you know, uh, when I was running money, uh, we tended to think of of index-level earnings as you sort of add up all the money that the companies in the index make or lose, and then you divide it by what's called the index divisor, and that gets you your earnings per share. Uh, apparently, that wasn't good enough for our equity market chums, and they they prefer to use uh, something that, that weights individual company earnings by their weighting in the index, and guess what? The companies with the highest weighting in the index typically have big earnings, and the companies with lower weightings typically have smaller earnings or negative earnings. And it's a kind of a way of implementing this selection bias um, to, to upweight uh, good news and sort of downweight bad news. And unsurprisingly, it makes the equity market look a little less expensive than it does using the good old way that uh, the Standard & Poor's incidentally still uses uh, when they publish their own um, readings of the P ratio of the of the S&P but all that having been said even using the shiny new choose your own facts um, earnings for the S&P it still looks expensive uh, relative to inflation the, yep. the the earnings yield of of the S&P is still below inflation and typically that's been an environment when the market has gone down um, I've got some other ancillary metrics that I like to look to use that are more forward-looking. Yeah. Mm. They still say that the market is really, really expensive. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, I mean, we see, we've seen a lot of dip buying this year, particularly from retail. And I think what the penny hasn't dropped, that the free money tree is dead. Right? Okay, 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 let, let's just jump in there. Is it? The free money tree, basically, let's call the free money tree QE. Let's call the free money tree the amount of liquidity the central bumps, uh, central banks pump. Try and mix my words up there uh, into the economy. Yes, the Fed has tightened rates. Yes, the Fed has embarked cautiously uh, on quantitative tightening. Other central banks haven't. The ECB has barely budged its balance sheets. The Chinese, uh, and you have to factor in here what is happening in terms of ability to get money out of China, but nevertheless, uh, they continue to pump money into the system and are doing so more actively now. And the Japanese continue to do so as well. As long as those other central banks continue to do what they're doing, isn't the, isn't the money tree still growing? Uh, the money tree might be growing, but it's not free money. Uh, at, at least if you, if you want to use dollars, which is still the, obviously the world's, um, the world's currency, uh, uh, or preeminent um, reserve currency, and it's certainly obviously the, uh, the, the denomination of the U.S. equity market, which is the biggest market in the world, obviously, uh, the interest rates are like 5% um, uh, almost uh, at, at the short end. 
and they're going to get there uh, in, a, in, a, in a hurry. Um, you know, on a six-month, you know, say six-month bills or whatever, going to get there before too long as well. Um, so it's not just the quantity of money, it's the price of money. Um, yep. Even in Europe, um, yeah, the ECB balance sheet hasn't really budged, but, you know, we had, whatever it was, eight years of negative interest rates. They ain't, they, they ain't negative anymore. Uh, when you go from a negative discount factor to a positive discount factor, that, that means something. Now, that having been said, I think European equities look much more reasonably priced than, um, than uh, the nose in the United States, so I, I suspect that's less of an issue. Um, but listen, for the last you know for the last few years, in particular, the, the two years you know 2020 and 2021, the U.S. financial system kind of devolved into almost a joke. Uh, you know, with these meme stocks, with, you know, when people were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on monkey JPEGs. I mean, that tells you the price of money is wrong, yeah. right? And. Uh, What's happening is we're getting a reversion back to, you know, what I would term, I guess, the good old days. When I want gray hair, I might term the good old days. And the real issue for for financial markets moving forward is come the next recession, come the next easing cycle, are we going to end up at zero again, as we have the last couple of times? Or are we going to end up at some number that's still pretty positive? And there's an argument to be made that, that it will be the latter. Um, and that, that, you know, that has, I think, repercussions for, for asset valuations over a, over a longer-term basis. If the, if the real long-term uh, average interest rate is a lot higher over the next decade than it has been over the previous decade, you know, that, that means something. So let's take this uh, back into context of the discussion of the cost of money to what we're seeing now in terms of the Fed peak rate debate, right? We've seen a few Fed officials flagging it should be definitely above 5%. Uh, Bullard, I think, was flagging just under 5.4%. But Guy was just talking about uh, a group of academics flagging maybe it should be at 6.5%. Uh, what are your thoughts on that scenario, Cam, and what breaks in that instance? Well, I mean, the, the Fed's, uh, the estimates that the Fed has given in the previous dot plot and in the various speeches over the last few weeks are predicated on the information they had at the time. And the information they had at the time largely indicated the economy was decelerating, uh, inflation was coming lower on kind of a straight line basis. Uh, the, the data released this month, which was for January, obviously, has sort of changed that narrative quite a bit. Um, now, what we don't know is just how much weather has played a part of this. Yep. Um, the weather in the United States in the second half of December was awful. Um, it was bitterly cold. There were massive snowstorms in large parts of the country, and that had an impact on economic activity. Um, so January saw a bounce back. Um, so kind of you need to look at December and January data in tandem rather than in isolation. And uh, when you do so, I think it, it suggests an economy that is still kind of ticking along. But we really need to see the, the numbers for February and March before we can reach any sort of conclusion about trajectory. right? Um, and what I will say is if we do find that the trajectory is actually one that's consistent with growth that's solidly positive, if not super robust, that would suggest, again, that, the, that interest rates aren't as restrictive 
effectively, as the Fed had previously thought, which means that the neutral rate is higher than they had previously thought. And that's, an, it, that's an idea that's starting to get bandied around a little bit in yep. the public sphere. I mean, I've been talking about it for quite a while, uh, but I guess no one listens <laughs> to me. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I mean, and that's really a key issue here. If, if we have exited sort of the post-GFC world where the, the neutral, the R-star rate, the supposed neutral uh, real interest rate is half a percent, um, and we go back towards something one, one and a half percent. I mean, in the 90s, we thought it was two and a bit percent. Um, if we were to go back to a two and a bit percent neutral interest, neutral real interest rate, well, with an inflation target of two percent, that puts the neutral policy rate at, at kind of four, four yeah. and a half percent. I mean, that's, that's a big that's a big difference from zero interest rates for eight years. Okay, let's talk about let's talk about therefore how you would need to reprice around that. A lot of people are piling money into bonds right now. I'm scratching my head about that. I'm wondering whether or not actually rates are going to go significantly higher. If so, bonds maybe in the long term look okay, but in the short term look like a tough bet. If that's the case, what's happening with equities as well? I, just in terms of the order of magnitude at the moment, Cam, how, how far off the mark do you think we are? Uh well, you know, again, obviously, we'll know with it's the sort of thing you only know in retrospect. I, I think equities are more obviously misvalued um, relative to their own history, um, as well as relative to. Uh, but but to by a lot or by a little? By a lot. I mean, I, I like the S and P, for example. I've for I don't know six or nine months. I thought I should go to like three thousand to thirty two hundred. Um, Nothing I've seen has has uh, disabused me of that uh, of, of that notion. And you know, at three thousand, yeah, I'm, I'd be pretty bullish uh, um, because I think we would have had a, a substantial adjustment there. Uh, and the and the and more importantly, uh, an environment when the the S and P is at three thousand is probably an environment when the monetary headwinds are going to are going to ebb, and you're going to start getting some monetary tailwinds. Um, but you know, there's, there's 30% between here and there. Um, yep. uh, I mean, I call me crazy, but, uh, I, I'm old enough to, to remember when stocks look cheap on occasion. And, um, I, I kind of prefer as an investor, uh, to, to buy the stuff that's cheap. Um, now if you don't think bond, if you, if you do think rates are going to five and a half, six percent, then obviously buying a 10 year bond at sub 4% yield isn't great either. Um, but yeah. the nice thing is, is that when a three-month T-bill currently yields whatever it is, 480, and uh, even if that goes to 5.5%, you're not going to really in, in, endure much of a capital loss because there's no duration on a T-bill, essentially. You know, in other words, you get remunerated pretty handsomely um, in nominal terms, at least, for owning cash, that's a viable alternative. So you don't have to choose one or the other, stocks yep. or bonds. You can choose cash. And that's, an, that's a, an option that hasn't really been a viable one for 15 years, um, with a couple of exceptions, uh, you know, this sort of 2017-2018 period in the U.S. Uh, I mean, Europe, Europeans, um, and to a slightly lesser degree in the U.K., cash hasn't been an alternative at all. I mean, in Europe, obviously, you got charged. Uh, if you were a big, if you were a, if you were a huge depositor and you got zero or tantamount to zero, if you were a retail depositor, 
um, all of a sudden, you know, that's, 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 that's an option. Um, so that's the, that's the things I think people haven't yet come to grips with. Yep. Um, there is, you know, it's not a binary world. It's a, it's a, it's a whatever the, the, whatever the equivalent of binary is, three, trinary, or whatever. Multipolar. Let's call it multipolar. Yeah, multipolar world. <laughs> yeah. Cam, uh, yeah, great to catch you. A pro guy. <laughs> I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. I, I, I listen to you. I always listen to you. Cameron Cries, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Cam's not convinced. The data certainly uh, are sending shudders through this market. Bloomberg's Cameron Cries. It's been quite a turbulent week, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. I'm ready for the weekend. Any big plans? Uh, no. Uh, Taking I'm going, a holiday I'm going fruit holiday. and vegetable hunting. <laughs> Maybe maybe sowing my vegetable garden ready in anticipation <laughs> for the for the crisis that's coming. Christine's worried. I've got a generator. I'm sure at home she's got some sort of micro garden going. Fruit and veg hunt over the weekend. That's yeah. what I'm doing. Well, that'll be fun. Something to do. Um, England are playing Wales at rugby. That should be a fun game as well. Uh, I've got a lot of sport to go and watch with my children. Uh, Christine, thank you very much indeed. It's been great to have you on the show this week. Uh, Alex and I, I think, will be back on Monday. I might be in Luxembourg. But have a great weekend, everybody. This is Bloomberg.